Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we get your reaction to emotional testimony yesterday from four police officers who were on the scene January 6th as insurrectionists breached the U.S. Capitol. During those moments, I remember thinking there was a very good chance I would be torn apart or shot to death with my own weapon. I thought of my four daughters who might lose their dad. We look at where the House Select Committee investigating the deadly Capitol attack goes from here and the struggle to hold the insurrectionists and their enablers accountable. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone yesterday describing what he encountered as he tried to protect the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. On that day, I participated in the defense of the United States Capitol from an armed mob, an armed mob of thousands determined to get inside because I was among the vastly outnumbered group of law enforcement officers protecting the Capitol and the people inside it. I was grabbed beaten, tased, all while being called a traitor to my country. I was at risk of being stripped of and killed with my own firearm as I heard chants of kill him with his own gun. I could still hear those words in my head today. Fanon was one of four officers who testified yesterday during the public, first public hearing of the House Select Committee tasked with investigating the attack on the Capitol. D.C. Officer Daniel Hodges and Capitol Police Officers Harry Dunn and Sergeant Aquilino Ganell also gave emotional testimony about the physical and verbal abuse they suffered, statements that are difficult to hear. No one had ever, ever called me a while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police Officer. In the days following the attempted insurrection, other black officers shared with me their own stories of racial abuse on January 6th. One officer told me he had never, and in his, his entire 40 years of life, been called a to his face. And that streak ended on January 6th. A chaotic melee ensued. Terrorists pushed through the line and engaged us in hand-to-hand combat. Several attempted to knock me over and steal my baton. One latched onto my face and got his thumb in my right eye, attempting to gouge it out. I cried out in pain and managed to shake him off. And all of them, all of them were telling us, 
Trump sent us. Nobody else, there was nobody else, it was not Antifa, it was not Black Lives Matters, it was not the FBI, it was his supporter that he sent them over to the Capitol that day. Joining me now, Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School, host of the podcast Passing Judgment. Jessica Levinson, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me back. Also with us, Ryan Goodman, professor of law at NYU, also co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and former special counsel for the Department of Defense. Ryan Goodman, good to have you here as well. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Claudia Grisales, a congressional reporter on NPR's Washington desk. Claudia Grisales, thank you so much for coming on as well. Good to join you. So I'll start with you, Claudia. What stood out to you from yesterday? I think it was really remarkable, just kind of the buildup we saw through this hours-long hearing, this just kind of emotional buildup. It felt like a tsunami by the time we got to the end in terms of hearing these stories from these officers largely interrupted about these very horrifying moments. Those pieces of tape you played there really help summarize uh, what what we heard yesterday and how uh, this built up this momentum for this committee, uh, as Representative Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from Maryland, said, you've given us our marching orders mm. and you held the line and now we need to hold the line. And that's what we're hearing from members now is the kind of focus this is going to develop for them on this investigation to give it a broad, comprehensive look in terms of witnesses, in terms of documents and building up. A more comprehensive probe into what really happened on January 6th, what went wrong. Yeah, and you bring up Raskin. I mean, this clearly had a strong effect on lawmakers. You saw Republican Adam Kinzinger and Democrat Adam Schiff both getting emotional. Exactly. Uh, the two Adams. Yeah, Schiff joked about that. The Democrat um, joked about that. This is the chairman of the House Intelligence uh, Committee saying that this triggered this level of emotion for the, from from these members. And this is many months later. Yeah. Jessica Levinson, what effect do you think having the officers testify and tell their stories? What effect do you think it has? For those who are listening, which unfortunately I think is a huge caveat, it has an enormous impact. I mean, it is to me, it's just impossible that you could actually sit there, look at what the officers are saying, listen to what they're saying and think that this was, I mean, what are some of the lies we've heard? That this was just a typical day with tourists walking through the Capitol, that this is a love fest. So it is important, I think, that people hear and that they understand what these law enforcement officers went through. And to the extent that we claim in this country that we support law enforcement, that we care about those who protect us, then I think it's really important for the American public also to see what they were put through and why. Now, you know, legally speaking, what difference does it make? I mean, the emotional impact, I think, is more of a political issue. What actually happened to them is more of a legal issue. But I think it's absolutely important that you had them come, you saw their reaction, you saw how they were continuing to struggle um, emotionally. And it, I think, really should raise the question for the American public, why wasn't this a bipartisan investigation? Why has this, like everything else in America, also become a partisan issue? 
Yes. And Ryan Goodman, if you want to share your impressions of yesterday, you can as well. But I'd also love for you to similarly put it in the context of what the committee is charged with doing. So um, I do think it kind of dovetails with what the committee is charged with doing, because it does, in a sense, give the committee its marching orders and uh, supercharges them in a certain way. Um, I thought that yesterday was powerful in the ways in which the officers, uh, you know, kind of present themselves as a moral force. And there's some similarity there between that and the 9-11 families as a moral force that pushed the 9-11 commission mm. uh, to be more aggressive in its investigation and the like. Um, they were always there in the background. So I think to have put the officers first as the stage setting was really important to that. And to see the officers themselves say things like, you know, one officer, Officer Ganell said, I, you know, I'm not looking, we're not looking for recognition. We're not looking for medals. We're looking for accountability and justice. Yes. And that's what this select committee is supposed to do and looks like they're very well geared up to do, which is find out what exactly happened on January 6th what was the president doing on January 6th in terms of when he saw the assault take place, but also what led up to January 6th, what mobilized Americans and militia groups and extremists like them to think that uh, they could engage in this kind of outrageous conduct. Um, you know, one of the aspects that I think is important for listeners to understand is just how broad the mandate is, and I think in a very good way. The mandate even explicitly in its text refers to how social media, for example, uh, played a role in the organization of uh, some of the extremist groups that went into the Capitol and in the radicalization. Um, and so there's a way in which this committee is supposed to investigate some of the deeper roots mm. of what brought us to January 6th. And what kind of powers does it have to do this? So the primary power that it has is um, a very strong fact-finding um, power. So it, it does have a subpoena power that the chair alone can exercise. Um, and yesterday, uh, Chairman Thompson said that he will be um, issuing subpoenas, quote unquote, soon, which is very important because you could imagine a committee waiting um, to first do like voluntary letters and then um, go later. Subpoenas are backed up by potentially civil fines, but also uh, potential criminal penalties. And then hanging over some of the witnesses that will probably be coming before this committee is uh, the law on no false statements uh, to Congress, lying to Congress or in more common terms, people think of it as perjury. And we do have a Justice Department that very well might actually, you know, very well might enforce that. Um, mm -hmm. Where we didn't have that with unfortunately a Bill Barr Justice Department and people appearing before Congress in the last four years. So I think those are some of the powers that the committee has. And then, you know, we can get into this in different parts of the conversation, but the committee's work might dovetail pretty nicely with some of the criminal investigations that are going on, some of the civil suits um, by Representative Sawall and others that are uh, going on. There's also, they've got to de-conflict as well, so not to avoid um, in some ways uh, in, uh, disturbing the criminal investigations, but they might produce evidence and have people come forward in ways in which it would actually propel 
some of the criminal investigations. Yes, I was wondering about how the DOJ investigation and this committee's investigation, how they can inform each other. But Jessica Levinson, it is the criminal work, though, is separate from uh, the committee. Yes. I mean, it can dovetail, but the members of Congress are not prosecutors. So we've seen that what members of Congress can do, of course, is uh, implement or impose, excuse me, impeachment. But in terms of you're not going to see, you know, Adam Schiff, even though he's a former AUSA, walking into a criminal courtroom. Uh, but absolutely, you could have two um you could have Congress and you could have the Department of Justice working in concert. I mean, as Professor Goodman just mentioned, you know, these are still going to be subpoenas that are issued. Uh, people will still be speaking under oath. And there are a whole host of ways that these two investigations could weave together. But no, this is separate. This is really a fact-finding mission. They do have the force of law in terms of issuing subpoenas, finding information, asking people to testify under oath. But the Department of Justice is the one looking at uh, the federal criminal code and deciding whether or not there are appropriate charges here. We're talking with Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School. Also, Ryan Goodman is with us, professor of law at NYU, also co-editor-in-chief of Just Security. Claudia Grisales is with us, a congressional reporter on NPR's Washington desk. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your reactions to yesterday's testimony, your thoughts or questions for our panel about where things go from here. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's a Republican member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol, Liz Cheney. We must know what happened here at the Capitol. We must also know what happened every minute of that day in the White House. Every phone call, every conversation, every meeting leading up to, during, and after the attack. Honorable men and women have an obligation to step forward. If those responsible are not held accountable, and if Congress does not act responsibly, this will remain a cancer on our constitutional republic, undermining the peaceful transfer of power at the heart of our democratic system. We will face the threat of more violence in the months to come and another January 6th every four years. 
That was Republican member of the House Select Committee investigating January 6th, Liz Cheney. We're also joined this morning by Ryan Goodman, professor of law at NYU, Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School, Claudia Grisales, congressional reporter for NPR. You, our listeners, are with us sharing your thoughts and reactions. 866-733-6786, the number, email address forum at kqed.org. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. A listener writes, I wept while watching the hearing yesterday. Fox News and the GOP defending these domestic terrorists need to be called out loudly in the media. Ryan Goodman, we just heard Liz Cheney there laying out the stakes, talking about how this will threaten and undermine the nation's peaceful transfer of power and that we could face additional January 6s. You've written extensively about the kinds of information you think the committee should seek to avoid just that. And you laid it out a little bit earlier, but could you go into a little bit more detail about some of the key things that you really think they need to be asking and who they should be speaking with? Sure. So to segue from um, Representative Cheney, I do think a huge question is about um, what President Trump was doing in the Oval Office uh, once he saw the assault take place. And to some extent, we all know the answer to that. Um, And it's been widely reported in the Washington Post, New York Times, et cetera, based on anonymous sources that um, he was delighted uh, by what he saw, um, that he responded to, you know, uh, Minority Leader McCarthy when McCarthy tried to call him to plead with him to make a statement. Trump said, you know, they care more about uh, the country than you do. Um, And, but we don't have that kind of live testimony and we don't have it under oath. And just one of the thoughts I had about yesterday as well is the vivid nature, the riveting nature of live testimony like that is what I think can penetrate through information bubbles to some extent, but otherwise it leaves a very indelible mark and understanding of the history of what occurred. So it's something to have anonymous sources in the Washington Post is completely different to have that kind of live testimony under oath. So Ivanka Trump, I think needs to be subpoenaed, fortunately, unfortunately. Um, There's the recent book by the Washington Post reporters, Carol Lenig and Philip Rucker. They say something, which is in other books as well, in other reporting, which is that Ivanka Trump goes multiple times to President Trump to plead with him to make a statement to get the supporters out of the building. And he doesn't do it. So under oath, she needs to be asked, what did you specifically say to him? Did you tell him that there was a threat to life? Were people warning him of the threat to the vice president? Um, What was his reaction? And there are other multiple witnesses so that it'll be very difficult for her not to be candid to some, to a great extent with the committee when they asked that kind of question. Mark Meadows, uh, White House Chief of Staff and several other aides uh, that were in the president's orbit and others who um, were trying to plead with him outside of the White House, but former uh, close aides. So that's one large part of it. And yesterday, an important legal development occurred for those of us in the legal circles, which is that the Department of Justice has sent a letter to former Trump officials essentially saying they um, are authorized, green, they have a green light to testify before Congress. The Department of Justice does not think that there are executive privileges that would block them from testifying. So I think that's one important mm. development. 
Um, and then a second one is, you know, this big question that lurks, which is what exactly was on the mind of Donald Trump and the rally organizers beforehand? Did they intend for Trump supporters to go to the Capitol and disrupt the proceedings or intimidate members of Congress? In their minds, were they thinking something like, oh, you know, the way they've described it as the Kavanaugh mob? Do they want a mob of people inside the building face-to-face -face with members of Congress pressuring them? And that's what they intended. And that's what he knew President Trump when he made his speech about go fight at the Capitol. Mo Brooks made his speech about, you know, we should even think about giving up our lives. Um, and Giuliani said, uh, uh, trial by combat. If they anticipated that, that would actually be very significant for the criminal cases because that's actually the criminal charge that many of the people are charged with, uh, which is obstruction of Congress, not all of the violence and the rest of it, but that alone would be very significant. And then the third item I'll just mention very briefly is the intelligence failure. Mm -hmm. There's a huge question for the, for the country, which is how, to what degree and whether our intelligence and law enforcement agencies are susceptible to political pressure and are susceptible to uh, racial bias, because that seems to be a large explanation behind the uh, ways in which the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, did not warn um, other law enforcement agencies or issue a specific uh, warning about the threat to the Capitol. Well, let me go to caller John in Petaluma. Hi, John. Hi, how are you doing? I'm all right. What's on your mind? Well, um, I've been listening uh, to the conversation, and my question is, uh, or first of all, I want to make a comment. Um, between the uh, time of the election and the insurrection uh, on Fox News, the idea of a steal was mentioned somewhere in the neighborhood of close to 700 times. And uh, recently I saw a YouTube video of some of the insurrectionists being interviewed who have been arrested now, and they said that their thinking was shaped by these this this uh, these right wing uh, news outlets like Fox News and Newsmax and others. And I just think that Fox News is isn't being called out for the way it's poisoned the dialogue in our American politics. Uh, specifically, Tucker Carlson, who's doing it with his anti-vaxxer movement now and Sean Hannity and all the others. And um, if this is, was one of the elements that shaped the insurrection, this has to be talked about. And it seems like uh, people kind of shy away from wanting to implicate Fox News for some reason, uh, when it's quite obvious, it's almost like the elephant in the room that's on uh, every night shaping millions of people's views on uh, and now they're you know their latest narrative is it was all Pelosi's fault. Mm. One six was Pelosi's fault. So what can be done? You know, I I've talked to other people about like reinstating the fairness doctrine in our in our our, our news media, uh, or which is probably a long shot. But there has to be some accountability by this powerful news outlet. And I'd like to hear some discussion about that. Thank you. Uh, John, thanks. And also to your point about the fact that there is a change in message right now among Republicans to try 
uh, to say that this is Pelosi's fault. Mary writes, I was in tears yesterday listening to the testimony of the four police officers, so I called Kevin McCarthy's office and expressed my dismay that Kevin McCarthy went back on his original assessment of the January 6th insurrection. Why is McCarthy so enamored with Trump? I mean, Jessica Levinson, obviously this committee is operating in a hyperpartisan environment, a media landscape as well that John is discussing. Can it be effective in light of all of that? You mentioned that it isn't bipartisan. We do have two Republican members sitting there, but of course, before this, the drama was that uh, Speaker Pelosi refused to allow Representative uh, Jordan and Banks to sit on the committee, and that uh, then was responded to by Kevin McCarthy as as basically proof that this whole committee and its actions is politically biased. So. Given all of that, I mean, how does it get the cooperation it needs based on the questions that that Ryan Goodman laid out here that need to be answered? Oh, my gosh, such a good question. And apologies if I said uh, it's not bipartisan as opposed to something like it's a qualifier, like it's not a, truly as bipartisan as, frankly, it should be. I mean, I know I've said this before, but the idea that people attacking the Capitol and threatening the Capitol police should also be something through which we view through a partisan lens really shows us where we are in America in 2021, right? I mean, what on earth does this have to do with your view of tax policy or immigration reform or um, environmental regulations? Uh, but here we are, and you asked me this fantastic question, which I feel in so many ways is almost unanswerable, which is how do they move forward? And I have thought so many times along the way, okay, this is the moment when we all come together and say, this is enough. We care more about the Republic. And even if it means criticizing President Trump, then that's that. Even if it means losing an election, even if it means losing the Senate. And every time I think that I'm proven wrong, which I think is a long way of saying, I don't think that this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. I do not think that seeing these law enforcement officers who go to work every day to do nothing other than protect all of our elected officials, not just the Democrats, not just the Republicans, but all of them, and to see them literally in tears and pounding a desk saying this is outrageous, I still don't think that moves the dial. And I don't know if that's because people aren't listening or because they already have their preconceived notions. The, you know, your caller mentioned Fox News. We could also mention, of course, misinformation and disinformation on social media. I mean, this is all a very long way of saying, I think it's not just asking the right questions. It's getting people to listen. We used to all read from the same script, listen to the same places. We're in such silos right now. I think one of the biggest thresholds to clear when it comes to this committee, when it comes to this special committee, is just getting everybody to hear what is said. Claudia Cristales, can you give us some insight into what you're hearing from congressional Republicans? For example, it's been called basically a boycott, that they're boycotting the investigation, save these two uh, Republicans who are very much now on the outs with most of the party. What are you hearing about the justification for that? Yes, there's definite frustration that Republicans uh, largely are expressing, and this goes back to uh, the battle whether to create a 9-11 style commission. Republicans uh, just were not fully on board with that, so this select committee 
uh, was the next step for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And so this committee, uh, with 13 seats designated, allowed uh, Speaker Pelosi to appoint Democrats to the panel, and uh, she had hinted she may appoint some Republicans uh, to the panel as well, allowing for out of the 13, five uh, to be appointed by House Republicans um, with her consultation. This was part of the resolution that was approved in the House to create this committee. And so of those five, two uh, were not approved by Pelosi. These, this is Representatives Jim Banks of Indiana and Jim Jordan of Ohio, but she said she would greenlight the others. That said, House uh, GOP leader Kevin McCarthy said that that was not going to work, and he pulled all five of his picks, leaving Speaker Pelosi to add another Republican uh, in addition to Liz Cheney. Uh, this is Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. So Republicans have said, fine, we're not going to take part uh, at this point. And they held uh, kind of their counter-programming press conference yesterday before the committee met and raised a lot of questions in terms of Democrats, in terms of House Speaker Pelosi and their role in the security of the Capitol, perhaps kind of raising these questions about uh Pelosi played a role here with some of the issues with uh, security. So it seems like that is the direction some of these Republicans want to go in now is, is to aim the target at Democrats and what role they played in terms of these weaknesses we saw play out on January 6th. And another listener brought up California's Kevin McCarthy. Can you just help us understand his strategy, why the political risks are so high? Yes, they are very high. McCarthy is in a very, very tricky situation because, as we as we know, he spoke to then-President Trump on January 6th, and there's lots of questions about what those conversations entailed. There's a lot of debate within the GOP itself about what happened. McCarthy himself has not detailed that conversation. We're, we're not clear uh, what happened from his perspective. And so he is a person, and even Liz Cheney has, has raised this, that could be called to the committee to testify. So politically, yes, this is a very, very tricky situation. And I can imagine that Republicans like McCarthy do not want the focus on them and the role they may or may not have played that day. And so is this a function of if you do not like what's going to come out, you try to undermine the credibility of the committee to begin with? Let me just play uh, McCarthy actually really quick talking about how he doesn't think the committee is legitimate. This panel has lost all legitimacy and credibility. And it shows exactly what I warned back at the beginning of January, that Pelosi would play politics with this. So is that what you think is driving some of this as well? Well, that is something that Democrats and even some Republicans like Liz Cheney will argue that McCarthy is sabotaging uh, this investigation by trying to distract from looking into the facts of that day. And so, yes, there is an argument out there that this is part of the motivation that that McCarthy does not want to take center stage here. Well, let me go to caller Shamar in Oakland. Hi, Shamar. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, so I haven't been to a protest since like 2009 after Oscar Grant was murdered, um, but I've watched how large-scale social justice demonstrations have played out the past, the past few years. I was even thinking about as recently as last year, 
And I think if you'd ask the police for testimony after any of those incidents, we'd hear the same sob story. Uh, we were terrified and require even more resources to do our jobs, quote unquote. Uh, frankly, the videos that have circulated of police mulling around uh, in January don't really tell the same story as uh, the testimony we heard. Uh, we never hear anything about the unarmed woman who was killed and an officer involved shooting that day. Uh, I'd certainly like to hear more about some of the race and gender-based abuse that the D.C. officers experienced, but I'm concerned that all we're hearing is uh, just expanding police funding mm. and further criminalizing political activity. Well, kind of in a, yeah, Shamar, kind of in a similar vein, Wallace tweets, I want to hear from more officers, especially the ones who opened the barriers. Ryan Goodman, is this a good line of inquiry? Um, so I do think that it's an important line of inquiry for the broader question, um, which is about something that I think has to be foregrounded, uh, white supremacy um, is part of it. So that was foregrounded by the testimony um, of some of the officers yesterday, especially you know some of the clips that were played at the beginning um, of our conversation and the ways in which uh, the crowd was treated with kit gloves by some of the officers. Remember, many people will remember the footage of um, one of the rioters being escorted very gently down the stairs after she had uh, been inside the Capitol, um, which is a federal, you know, committing a federal crime, which is very different uh, than you might think uh, people are otherwise treated and have been treated, uh, for example, in some of the summer 2020 protests. And you know, very significant question is about the law enforcement uh, failure and the treatment um, of some of the riders during that. And then in the reverse, why some of the riders thought that they could be that aggressive. Um, you know, from the very first images that many of us saw where you have these riders, a, a, an angry mob of primarily white people thinking that they can spit fury into the face of police officers with yep. impunity. We'll have more after the break about the congressional hearing investigating January 6th. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Coming up tomorrow on Forum, a UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies poll found Tuesday that 47 percent of likely voters would vote to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. We'll talk about the latest with the recall effort. And we'll talk to Jonah Mixon-Webster, whose new collection Stereotype uses avant-garde forms of poetry to depict his experiences as a black queer man and to criticize the government's apathy toward his hometown, Flint, Michigan. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org slash forum. For the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about yesterday's congressional hearing on the January 6th 
Capital Attack with Jessica Levinson of Loyola Law School, Ryan Goodman of NYU, also co-editor of Just Security and former special counsel for the Department of Defense, Claudia Grisales, congressional reporter on NPR's Washington desk. And you, our listeners, are with us. And let me go to Janova in Ventura. Hi, Janova. Hi. Um, I'm calling because I was appalled yesterday that when this was being telecast, apparently it should have been telecast on every single station that there was. I couldn't find it on my TV except on channel uh, on CBS, and they cut out before it was over. Hmm. We have half the population who believes that this is a is nothing but biased politics. Everyone needs to be watching these things, hmm. and we don't have access to it. What can we do about that? Janova, thanks for raising that point. And actually, I understand that we have California Representative Eric Swalwell on the line. Representative Swalwell, thank you for joining us. And are you there, Eric Swalwell? Yes, I am. Can you hear Thanks. me? Thanks. Yes, I can now. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to bring you in right then and was so glad to hear that you had called in because I do, I have heard this a lot, that it was not the top news of the day. Uh, it was not played on a lot of media outlets. And as the day progressed, it quickly did drop from the headlines. What is your reaction to this? What do you think it will take? to to make this something that the nation really focuses on in terms of its threat to democracy? It'll take all of us uh, and, and people like uh, your listener who just called in. You know, democracy nearly died on January 6th. And I, I saw that uh, front and center as I was on the House floor. And the overwhelming emotion that I had was it can't end this way, that we're too great of a country for the final chapter to be a mob overrunning the government and overturning an election. And because of the heroes uh, who were on the front lines, the men and women of the police and the National Guard uh, who defended the Capitol, it was saved. Uh, but the larger point is that democracy is on life support right now. And uh, what we do uh, in these important hours, whether it's cementing the truth of what happened on January 6th or making reforms to ensure that something like that never happens again. It's so critical. And so whether it's, you know, media, us as lawmakers or even just everyday citizens, you know, uh, democracy is not a nebulous concept. It's our right to vote, our freedom to work, our freedom to be educated, our freedom to worship, our freedom to dream as individuals. Uh, and, you know, we have to do all we can to preserve those freedoms. You have sued former President Donald Trump, Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, Trump's son Donald Trump Jr., and, and other associates, Giuliani, and so on. Why are you going through this channel? What are you accusing them of? It's for accountability. Uh, and the suit alleges uh, that uh, Donald Trump and Brooks and Don Jr. and Rudy Giuliani uh, incited, uh, assembled incited and aimed a mob at the Capitol uh, to impede us from performing our duties of counting the votes and also uh, that the mob, uh, the thousands that came, the hundreds that came in who were armed, the pipe bombs that were laid around the Capitol, uh, that that terrorized and traumatized uh, myself uh, and my colleagues and, you know, that they need to be held accountable. And, and I think at the end of the day, history will judge that we couldn't hold Donald Trump accountable enough uh, and we will never be judged for you know, overreaching, but perhaps not doing enough to stop, you know, the most ruthless, corrupt president that hopefully our country ever sees. What's your reaction to the fact that the Department of Justice basically said that uh, that, that Mo Brooks in 
his comments that he made um, related to the attack on the Capitol, something along the lines of today's the day American patriots start taking down names and, and kicking butt. Uh, he didn't say butt, but um, and ahead of the attack, that the DOJ does not see that as part of his official capacity as a representative and will not step in to replace him in your lawsuit. And I don't think any taxpayer uh, would believe that their taxpayer dollars should defend somebody uh, who says that. And, and ironically, Mo Brooks, who has voted against almost every government benefit afforded to American citizens, was seeking to have a government lawyer because he believed he was acting in his official capacity. But I, I don't think anyone believes that the title representative uh, includes uh, and the duties would allow you uh, to participate in a campaign event off campus, away from the Capitol, and as I said, be a part of assembling, inciting, and aiming a mob. But certainly this helps your case, doesn't it? <laughs> well, again, I'll, I'll leave it to the judge uh, to decide on that. Um, again, it, it certainly is the case that we are making in what we have filed with the court. Uh, and, you know, thankfully we have an independent judiciary and, you know, we just hope that this case moves uh, you know, fast uh, and fairly, uh, that, you know, it's not delayed uh, and, you know, it's not decided based on anything other than the merits. Before I let you go, Republicans are claiming that Speaker Pelosi bears some blame for the attack on the Capitol. Congressional leaders do hire the law enforcement personnel responsible for Capitol security. What is your reaction to that? It's such nonsense. It's an effort to erase what happened that day. It's also so convenient that uh, they're excluding Mitch McConnell in their blame because he at the time was the leader of the Senate. Uh, and again, I, I don't remember, uh, as Trevor Noah of The Daily Show said, um, you know, he forgot that Nancy Pelosi, you know, led a rally to install Nancy Pelosi as president and asked her supporters to go to the Capitol. But uh, no, that's what Donald Trump did. Uh, he's the one who's responsible. And, and, and for the officers, you know, it, it, it re-traumatizes them every time Republicans try and reassign blame for January 6th. Uh, they know they were on the front lines. They saw the Trump flags. They saw the Confederate flags. They heard the chants of hang Nancy Pelosi, hang Mike Pence. Uh, they know who was responsible. And in any effort to rewrite that or erase that, uh, is, is so insulting and traumatizing to them and sets us back as far as where we need to be to defend this Capitol and make sure it never happens again. Do you think this con this committee, this House Select Committee investigating that attack should bring former President Trump in? They should bring every relevant witness in and uh, sure seems like he's a relevant witness, but I'll, I'll leave that to Speaker Pelosi and, and the chair. Um, you know, we know Donald Trump refused to testify at the Senate impeachment trial, which I think went to a consciousness of guilt uh, on his part. Uh, but the, there are not as many pressures of time on the select committee. And, you know, I, I hope they are able to get every relevant witness uh, and relevant witnesses, if they have nothing to hide, would come forward. East Bay Representative Eric Swalwell represents the 15th District of California. Thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. And with us is Ryan Goodman of NYU, Jessica Levinson of Loyola Law School, Claudia Grisales of NPR, and you, our listeners. Uh, let me read just a couple of 
more comments. Roberto writes, these hearings will never be seen by people who only watch Fox News and therefore will have no impact. Just last night, Tucker Carlson said that this had nothing to do with race and insinuated that the FBI's responsibility for this attack should be the primary question. Our media is tailored to our tastes and opinions in ways it never was before. This listener writes, I was brought to tears by the officers recounting the sacrifice and suffering on their and their colleagues' behalf. This very idea that a fellow American would actually try to gouge out an officer's eye or worse, kill another with his own gun chills me to the bone. I have no idea how we got here, but every measure must be taken to ensure that this never happens again, no matter where the trail of accountability leads. And let me go to caller Patrick in Oakland. Hi, Patrick. Go right ahead. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I have a, a question and just a quick comment. Um, and thank you to the, the guests for sharing their legal expertise. I guess the question I have about this committee, the, the last committee I recall is the 9-11 Commission. Um, the, how far does the rabbit hole go, I guess, is my question with this committee? Because hmm. I was struck by how raw and intense the emotion was. I, too, kind of was emotional listening to those brave heroes talk and seeing how you know, these were victims um, of potential attacks and they were attacked. And uh, just understanding, like, does this committee, it sounds like they have subpoena power. It seems like they're going to look at both the causes of this insurrection and also fixing the, uh, you know, the security measures in place. Um, But are they going to look at like the dark money that funded this rally, the dark money that's been funding these alt-right groups? Will Will that lead to criminal prosecutions? The DOJ has ongoing prosecutions and they have maybe 200 more people to prosecute so i'm just curious where does the rabbit hole go based on your legal expertise and where that can take us and then a quick comment about mccarthy since his name was brought up is that i think there's also an aspect of this that needs to not be overlooked by both the congress people the prosecutors uh the committee members of um the fact that mccarthy was very chatty with trump on the day of the insurrection Um, and has in-depth knowledge of what Trump did and did not do uh, to protect them. And so I'm curious to know if McCarthy is also trying to muddy the waters because he himself does not want to expose how what he knows about Trump's um, state of mind and Trump's uh, inaction that day from the executive branch, because it seems like forces were withheld from protecting the Capitol. in the midst of this multiple hour long riot. So that's my comment about McCarthy not wanting to uh, investigate himself. And then also just understanding how deep the rabbit hole goes with this committee. Yeah. Some real actual prosecutions resulting. Well, Patrick, you laid out a lot there. Let me go to Ryan Goodman first on the question of the rabbit hole, how far it goes. Your thoughts, Ryan Goodman. So I do think that the issues uh, Robert raises are, Oh, sorry, that the call Patrick, raises mm-hmm. are, yeah, Patrick, um, are potentially um, on the line. Um, I think the one question to me that I'm not so sure about is how much they will go into following the money uh, for the organization of the rally, et cetera. Mm. That one, I'm not sure. Um, it's interesting that Liz Cheney um, once commented on something like that, that she thought that part of what McCarthy et al. were afraid of in any kind of independent investigation, uh, like a commission, was that they would um, go down that rabbit hole. Um, so, that, so this committee might do it. The other rabbit holes I, I think we should all be prepared for, they're, they're going there in a good way. Um, so maybe I shouldn't call them rabbit holes if that has a negative connotation. Uh, so for one, 
as Patrick mentions, you know, I think the law enforcement slash intelligence failure is something they're going to explore. They're going to plumb that. They're going to have multiple witnesses about it. And like the 9-11 Commission, I bet they produce a report that has pragmatic public policy recommendations for how we can improve the nation's security. And so some of the pessimism that we might have about who's watching and who's not watching is more about the politics of it and the American political and cultural understanding of the event. But I think for public policy and repairing our institutions, there's a good chance that this committee is gonna go down that path and produce something like the 9-11 Commission did. Um, and then in terms of accountability, I do think you know the big question is whether some of the um, testimony themselves plus potential reports by the committee will provide that kind of a record that works towards accountability. And uh, the Swalwell suit, you know, is one avenue for that. So as Representative Swalwell described it, if you hear what he said about the allegations in his suit, you can start to easily imagine that there will be testimony by the select, that the select committee will produce, which will address those very allegations and therefore might bolster. And if it goes in the other direction, it will go in the other direction, but I would anticipate it will bolster his suit. Um, and there's, yeah. just to mention one other suit, there's a suit by two Capitol Police officers as well against uh, President Trump, very similar to the Swalwell suit. And so that will also be bolstered, I believe. Um, and then of course the, you know, the other question is the criminal, the criminal cases. And they too uh, might be informed by what the committee does. We're talking about the select committee investigating January 6th in the House and yesterday's testimony. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Jessica Levinson, Patrick raised a couple of other things. One, he mentioned subpoenas, and there was another listener who wrote, during the Trump impeachment trials, Republicans ignored subpoenas. Why wouldn't they do the same in this investigation? I just finished teaching constitutional law over the summer and we were talking about subpoenas and we were talking about the separation of power and we brought up, so I'm going to use a lot of words to say, gosh, this is another fantastic question. And do we know the answer if people just refuse to respond to subpoenas? I mean, we have a couple of answers, which is that in fact, Congress does have, although very rarely used, um, inherent power to basically sanction people. Now, I, I'm going way too broad over that, but what else can Congress do? They can go to court and say, look, we issued a subpoena. We want this person to answer. Now we've seen not just in the impeachment, but we've seen in other investigations, for instance, of the of President Trump and the Trump administration, that that takes a long time. And then it becomes a political calculation of, do we want to wait for a court to say, yes, you have to respond. The person uh, who received the subpoena then says, hmm, no, I don't. I think I'm going to appeal this. And we can see how long that particular process takes. I think one of the things that we saw during the Trump administration is it really was a stress test on so many of our norms. And one of our norms is when you get a subpoena, you respond to it. And typically through a process called reconciliation, where you, know, you don't answer everything that you were asked. Maybe you don't give all of the documents, but you come to some sort of agreement. Okay, here's what I'm going to talk about. I'll show up on this day. And that's just not what we saw 
during the Trump administration. And it really showed that there are so many areas where we basically trust people to transgress norms a little bit, but not a huge amount. And so that's a very long way of saying uh, if Congress decides to go through the process of like not, you know, sending the sergeant in arms to go round somebody up, but to go through the court system, that could take a long time. And that's a political calculation as to whether or not they want to do that. Yes. Claudia Gonzalez, do you know when the next public hearing is of this committee? They haven't set that next meeting, but members hinted after yesterday's hearing that they could hold their next one as soon as August. Now, the House is supposed to go into recess next month, but what we're hearing, it's very possible that they could move to this next meeting in the next uh, next few weeks. Hmm. So Tina tweets, if January 6th wasn't enough to turn the dial or break the camel's back, what in God's name will be? As those incredible officers said, this is about our democracy and whether it lives or dies. Trump planned and executed a coup that was thwarted. He must be held accountable. We just have a minute, Ryan Goodman, but you did write about the pros and cons of having Trump come in. Can you talk about why it gives you pause? So I think it gives me pause because it will create a political circus. Um, we can count on Trump using it in that way. And it also gives me pause in the ways in which uh, disinformation will be spread through uh, President Trump in that kind of a forum. And it's not as easily controlled in terms of the real fact finding, sober and solemn kind of proceeding. Um, I'm not sure we need to hear from him. Um, it's like somebody being placed on trial. You don't necessarily need to hear from the defendant if there's a a lot of um, direct witness testimony, which I believe we will have. So it's a, it's a tough calculation um, for the committee, but I think it's one that they'll only be able to make later in time once they've developed the record. What's at stake, Ryan Goodman, if we don't get this right, if this committee isn't credible and we don't get this right, isn't viewed as credible? Um, so I'm afraid what's at stake um, sounds maybe potentially like a hyperbole, but it sounds like the listeners, many of the listeners agree, our democracy and what Representative Swalwell said, our democracy really is at stake. Um, we came razor close to the overturning of our democracy on January 6th. I think we're likely to hear from the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, General Milley, testifying before this committee, mm. explaining his personal fears that Trump was going to try to hold into power through use of the military. That's what's wow. at stake. Ryan Goodman, Jessica Levinson, Claudia Grisales, thanks all of you, and thanks for listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.